0: I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 15 this morning. Mark chapter number 15. I do want to remind us that um, we take the Lord's table here once a month, and today's the day. So I always want to encourage you as you sit through the sermon and worship God to um, prepare your hearts for that. It's always a time of encouragement. Even uh, Nathan this morning during Sunday school reminded us of just the encouragement in the Lord's table as He used it as an illustration. Um, we also want to just prepare our minds and um, and approach it faithfully as we're reminded of, of the Lord's work uh, on our behalf in the cross. So so you prepare your hearts for that. But we will pick up our reading and where we left off last week and we are coming to a close. I and mean, We've spent close to a year and a half, if not more, I've not been counting, but... Um, but it's been a while here in the book of Mark, and I trust that it's been a blessing to you if you've been with us. And if not, we've just taken this um, book verse by verse, and uh, this morning the text chooses us. And, uh, and we're praying that the Lord would have a, a word for, for each of us this morning. If, you'd, if you're willing and able, let us rise for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And we'll read the first 15 verses of Mark chapter number 15. The word of the Lord says this. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, "'Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you.' But Jesus answered, "'Nothing.' So that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barnabas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, "'Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?' For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would rather, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd, released Barnabas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Let's pray. Again, Father, we, um, um, I pray humbly, approach the throne room of grace, yet at the same time, Father, um, boldly on behalf of Christ and what he's accomplished for us, Lord. We come to you now just to beg that you'd meet with us. Father, that you'd make your presence known. we know that in the scriptures, you teach us that your presence is among us in the preaching of your word. So Father, help us to be faithful in the preaching that you may gather with us in it. Father, that your spirit may rule and reign in a mighty way in our hearts. Father, we are in such need of you this morning. Each and every one of us, Father, whether it's the smallest child, Father, or the most elderly adult, um, whether it's men with much wisdom or what the world would consider to be fools. Um, Father, we understand that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest of men. Father, how, how much uh, and how much we need you this morning um, to gather with us. Father, we also know that you gather with your people in prayer. We know that you gather with your people in the table. Father, we know that you gather with your people in the fellowship. Um, So, Lord, we're we're begging you this morning that you would meet with us in a mighty way, that we would come as a hungry and a thirsty people and needy people, Father, um, needing to receive the word of God as our ultimate sustenance, Father. Um, May we lean on you this morning as the bread of life, Um, Father, not living by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And may you do miraculous things this morning, Father, as we gather. May you use the word of God, Father, in such a way that maybe I don't even intend. But you take it to the depths of the hearts of us, Father, each of us. Father, meet us where we need it the most. Whether it's encouragement, Father, edification, whether it's correction or utter rebuke. Father, whatever is necessary this morning to make us more like your son, um, we beg you to do it, Father. We cast ourselves before you this morning, ready, I pray, joyfully and willfully to receive the word of God. Father, if someone's unsaved, would you show them their need of you this morning and their need of Christ? And may they cling to you, Father, in that great promise that whoever comes to you, you will in no wise cast out. So go with us now, Father, and help us to be faithful. Stay our minds upon your word and um, make us more like your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. You can be seated. Uh, Once again, we pick back up in probably um, what we should consider to be the most monumental week in human history here in Mark chapter 15. Uh, We've been in the book of Mark for, again, somewhere around a year and a half now, maybe more, with a few breaks. It's been wonderful. We've learned so much along the way that now we are... More accountable for, but in all reality, um, we've been moving towards this the entire time. This is where everything culminates. It all comes together. Not just the book of Mark and not just the Old Testament, but all of human history. Even those included. The book of Mark and the Old Testament, but everything. Um, This has been the point. Even the text before us. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John are released from prison for preaching the gospel, they, with the people of God, lifted their voices with one accord, and they said these words, Lord, you are God, who have made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stands, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and with the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Today, we'll meet many of those people, actually all of those groups. It's important to remember that when we do, that they're acting, but acting according to God's purpose and God's plan. John even writes in his gospel in John chapter 19, as Jesus remained silent before Pilate, he says to him, are you not speaking to me? This is Pilate to Jesus. Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered him saying, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate acts according to the counsel of God and the authority of God, and in the language of the Assyrian king in Isaiah chapter 10, yet he does not think so. That he acts according to the plan of God, yet retains his free agency to do what is in his own heart, yet he doesn't understand that the heart um, of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he desires. There's an old Dutch theologian by the name of Klaus Gilder who said these words, he says, it is impossible for people who are willing tools in Satan's hand, not to know that in their follies a scheme, a plan conducted by both hell and heaven is realizing itself. And that's exactly what we see before us, that the plan of both heaven and hell are realizing itself in the cross. Sadly to hell's realization though, it had no plan at all. It was God's plan all along. And that's what we read this morning. If you've been with us, you'll remember that at this point in the text, our Lord has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. At this point, the disciples have totally abandoned him, Peter included. He's been led away by the religious leaders. They led him away by utilizing Roman power in a Roman cohort. and By now, they've tried him before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, and while it's not in Mark's gospel, there's also a third phase of the Jewish trial in which he stands before the Sanhedrin later in the day, uh, possibly just to make it formal. You'll remember that it was illegal to to try a man at night, especially um, related to the sentence of death. It was, but really, it was all just an abuse of justice. It was a, a the whole trial that we've seen so far of Jesus according to the Jews. It's just, um, it's 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 a horrific display of hypocrisy to the core. Um, it's it's dark. It's it's illegal. It's um, it's, it's, it's a sham. What's the conclusion? The, the conclusion was already made before the, before the trial ever even started, that, that Jesus was worthy of death. His crime blasphemy, Mark chapter 14, I believe it's verse 64, says, and after the verdict is given, our Lord is spat upon, He's blindfolded, He's beaten, He's bruised, He's mocked, and there is a brief subplot. Um, from Peter's denial, following that, and then we enter into Mark chapter number fifteen and verse number one, and we begin with accusations against our Lord. The text begins emphatically, as Mark often does, with this term that is uh, some—it's his M.O., it's his way. You'll remember that the Book of Mark is is fast-paced. He's—it's like a snapshot. It's like a, a newspaper article, and and it's quick and it's to the point. Um, and it's fast, and it's, he uses his favorite word here immediately. That's, again, that's Mark's, um, his, his M.O., his mode of operation. Um, but in all reality, it is fast-paced. It's, it's needful for us to grasp the succession of the events. This, this is happening Fast. I mean, it's moving one place to another within you know 12 hours or so. He's going to be tried three different times by the Jews and three different times by Rome. And by you know, the end of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon, he's going to be murdered and crucified, the fastest trial that probably happened in Jewish history, um, especially with a capital punishment. Um, and that's what the text is. Mark is very um, quickly paced, but rightfully so. we pick up in 15 when he says immediately in the morning and the term there morning it seems like a general term to us you may have a translation that says early um but 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 in the original language, the idea is very specific. This is probably happening around five to 6 a.m. in the morning. Remember that the cock crowed, that Jesus was in Gethsemane at midnight? Um, he spent an hour to two hours in prayer. The final cock crows, probably um, later in that morning, um, around three, four. Um, some, some even argue around five or six. It, it, it's almost as if, if the cock crows, according to some um, Christians throughout history, and as Peter is, as Jesus is going away. Um, the cock is uh, crowing. The rooster gives its last. Peter looks at Jesus, and he's been taken immediately to Pilate. Um, the, the The Roman uh, the Roman government was notorious for starting their proceedings, legal proceedings, as early as possible. They wanted the rest of the day to live um, an ecstatic. Part of life, And they would often begin at the very um, break of dawn, so 5 to 6 a.m. is where we're at. Jesus has been up all night. The disciples have been up all night. And the Jewish people, after their um, sham and circus of a trial, the illegal proceedings, they bring our Lord, the text says, immediately in the morning the chief priests had a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led Him away, and delivered Him to Pilate. The chief priests, the elders and the scribes, and the whole council, this would have been the Sanhedrin, uh, once again finalized the verdict and what they would charge our Lord with and their argument for Pilate, this Roman procurator, this Roman governor. They needed an argument with him, so they gathered together for a final council in which they conclude his death as well as the charge that they would um, bring against him. That's what they mean when it says they held a consultation. They made their decision. They made a resolution. What was that resolution? Jesus needs to die on the charge of blasphemy, and thus they need to send him to Pilate to accomplish it. One commentator says the Jewish hearing, however important um, the the formal repudiation of Jesus was by Jerusalem leadership, it was not an official trial. Um, In that there was no formulated charge and the Sanhedrin did not have the power to execute a sentence of capital nature. It was rather a search, This was the Jewish trial. It was rather a search for a plausible charge to bring against Jesus at an official trial, which on a capital charge must be held before the Roman prefect, who alone could pronounce a death sentence. So so the idea is this. They've charged him with blasphemy. They've bound him, and they must lead him away. John's gospel actually tells us, as as they come to um, Pilate, Pilate says, so, so what? Essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, and, I, and I'll give you the quote here in just a few moments. The text is not immediately before me. But, but the idea is, is that they've brought him to Pilate, and Pilate says, okay, go charge him yourself. He's broken your law. And the, Jews, the Jewish religious leaders look at Pilate and say, we cannot put him to death according to our law. So what needed to happen is that they needed they resolved to take him to Pilate. Why? Because they needed Pilate to carry out the end. And the end was death. Rome uh, was, to, was the only one, according to Jewish law, or at least tradition, under Roman authority that could carry it out. So they bring him to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea during that time. He was um, placed there by Emperor Tiberius. And Pilate would have been... Um, the man who had uh, full power of whatever military might he desired. Under the rule of Roman power, he had the power of the sword of life and of death. He had the sovereign power in all areas of justice. And he could have wielded that sword of, of justice or he could have wielded the mercy of his hand. And we'll see that in just a few moments. But John 18, 29 is the portion that I just referenced you read these words Pilate then went out to them and said what accusation do you bring against this man and they answered and said to him if he were not an evildoer we wouldn't have delivered him to you and then Pilate said to him you take him and judge him according to your law and therefore the Jews said to him it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death So here we are, they've brought him before uh, the highest court in the land in some sense that could deliver a capital punishment. Verse number two, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Again, Mark is going to rush through this. I would encourage you to go to Matthew 27, John 18 and 19, as well as Luke chapter 23 to get the entirety of the picture. Um, But in Mark's gospel, we have him coming before Pilate and immediately Pilate asked him this question, are you the king of the Jews? And his answer is, it is as you say. Pilate's very question reveals the nature of the charges that are brought before him. Um, they couldn't, if, you, if you think about it, as we went through the book of Mark, nowhere in the book of Mark, nowhere in any of the Gospels, have you ever heard Jesus nor his disciples or the Jewish people ever refer to our Lord as the King of the Jews? The reason is is that during the consultation, during the trial, they, need, they have a, char- they need to bring a charge that, that will stick. And, and blasphemy won't stick with Pilate. And um, Pilate doesn't care. Pilate is a blasphemer. Um, he's a pagan. He could care less. Go judge him according to your law. So what they have to do is they have to tailor it towards um, the idea of Roman treason. So they title our Lord not as Messiah, not as the Christ, but as the king of the Jews. Uh, One commentator says, The blasphemy which confirmed the Jewish leader's view that Jesus must be executed must therefore be adapted into a charge with a more political tone which a Roman governor could understand and would be obliged to take seriously. The task was not difficult since the central issue of Jesus' hearing had been the claim to a special authority overriding even that of the properly constituted Jewish leadership. And in that connection, Jesus had not only willingly accepted the title Christ, but had gone on to arrogate himself as an even higher authority. True, the terms of his claim had been theological rather than political, but they provided ample basis for a charge that he was claiming royal authority among his own people. And such a claim under Roman occupation would naturally have been seen as treasonable, placing Jesus within the category of a nationalist. Following Judas of Galilee rejected Roman rule as incompatible with the status of the people of God. And in Luke chapter 23, we see more fully the charges that they bring against him. And they begin to accuse him, Luke 23 says, we found his fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And you see what they've done. No longer is it the charge of blasphemy before Pilate. But, but they have to raise the stakes to high treason. He's not paying taxes. He doesn't pay tribute to Caesar. He doesn't believe that Caesar is God. Later on, um, he's, they're actually going to argue and say that the that only God that we have is Caesar. And they say this man claims to be a king. In some sense, he sets himself as, 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 as in opposition to um, Rome, his, to Caesar, to you. He speaks of anarchy and rebellion and sedition. He doesn't pay taxes. He doesn't pay tribute. And the only God that he has is another God, not Caesar. Later on in John chapter 19 and verse number 5 through 15, you'll actually read of an account in which Pilate wants to let him go. But in verse number 12, this is what they say. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whomever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement. And now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. That the chief priests press Pilate and manipulate him in such a way that makes him fully aware that if Jesus is set free, and then he will be accountable to Caesar when they when he leads a Roman when he leads the Jewish rebellion against Rome. Thus, to gratify the people, Pilate um, yields himself to the Jewish response. What is Jesus' response? Verse number two. It is as you say. It is as you say. Um, if you look at the New King James, which is what I preach from, if you have that this morning, if you don't, that's fine. You may have a different translation. But, but, but what you'll see is you'll see that it is as is in italics. Jesus' response is actually much more simple than it is as you say. It's a, it may even be a non-answer. It literally could just be translated you say. Or more familiar to us, it would be you said it, not me. In a very qualified way, he just leaves. Again, what we're going to see here in just a moment, this silence to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 7. He goes before um, the, the shearers. as uh, He opens not his mouth. He goes before the shearers uh, as, 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 as a dumb sheep, as a, a, a voiceless sheep, as one who opens not his, um, his mouth. But actually, John chapter 18 and verse 36 Um, gives a little bit more into the idea of what he says Um, as he argues that he is a king, but he's not a king in the way that Pilate thinks that he is arguing or that the Jews are. You know, and it may be very just almost ironic and a type of scorn throughout the whole time. I mean, uh, what you have before Pilate is this man who is beaten, battered, and bruised with a crown of thorns eventually on his head. And he may be looking at the Jewish people with kind of um, this, this, this idea of, what in the world are you talking about? This is your king? I mean, look at this guy. I mean, he, he doesn't even open his mouth. Um, he's arguing nothing for himself. There's, I mean, he's totally silent. There's no rebellion in him. He goes like a lamb to the slaughter. Um, and that could be in part why he desires to let him go. Um, but, but in John eighteen thirty six, Jesus is very explicit. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, that, that, that he answers in some way to, to, to implicate himself by saying you say it, not I. But um, at the same time, it could be true and false. You say it, but it's not in the way that you think, Pilate. It's not in the way the Jews represent. But yes, I am a king and my kingdom is not of this world. And I've come to rule a people not of this world. Uh, Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. In the midst of it all, the chief priests just, I mean, they just can't keep it to themselves. The text says that they continue to accuse him of many things. And this is a very legal sense of, they keep bringing accusation after accusation against him. Luke chapter 23 and verse number 4 says, So Pilate said to the chief priest, I find no fault in this man. Um, I find no fault in this man. And Luke 23, 5, as a result of that, this is what they say. The text says, But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. In other words, they keep on insisting. As he... three times comes back and says, I find no fault in this man. He's guilty. He's a rebel. He's seditious. He's a threat. He, he, he stirs up the people. He's, he's, he, he's leading them against us and against you. You have to do something. Verses four and five. And Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So that Pilate marveled. Pilate is amazed. That's literally what the term means. He's standing there and they're bringing accusation after accusation against him. Um, that things that are worthy of being punished by death, that if this is true and you're silent, then you're going to die. So Pilate asked him, What do you have to say for yourself? Why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you make a defense? Get the scene, it's chaotic. Pilate is frustrated and he doesn't understand. Um, the entire scene of the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the elders everyone is just to the point that, that, that later on Josephus um, um, uh, gives an account of, of another instance in which um, Samaritans are rising up and the people are rising up against them and it's the same type of idea that there's almost this revolt that's about to break out because Pilate won't give them what they desire thus they, 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 they're about to lose it and Pilate's about to lose it because because he won't defend himself. And in the midst of it all, we have this man, Christ Jesus, um, who's it's it's almost like the chaos doesn't exist. Have you ever been there? Have you ever actually tried to, in your flesh, try to rile someone up and you just can't do it? And I mean you just you just lose it even more because of their patience and their, their grace and their mercy. Um, that, that's kind of the idea It's, it's, it's the, in the midst there's this chaotic scene that's going all around the anxiety, the tension the, the contention is just at an all time high among, among Rome and among the Jews and you have this guy here that he just won't say a word you know I just can't get anything out of him I can't get a rise out of him there's just this royal dignity about him that is just otherworldly um So you see the accusations, number two, you see the um, possibility or opportunity for amnesty in verse number six. Verse number six, now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. And then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do um, just as he had always done. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? for he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So the idea of this chaos is going on everywhere. Accusations are flying. Pilate is trying to release him. The Jews won't um, allow it to happen. So the Jews bring up um, this this concept of a tradition that they've had seemingly um, for feasts and for ages. Um, The tradition is is that, um, and and this isn't a tradition that's unique to them, What you'll find throughout um, Jewish history, but also um, many pagan religions as well, and many foreign countries even to this day, is that during a time of celebration, they would often, um, a, a procurator, a governor, someone that was in authority would come and actually release a, a prisoner to appease the people. Um, it seems to be that this is the tradition that is is being um talked about here. And Pilate would have had that opportunity and he would have had that ability. He had the power as a Roman governor to release a prisoner not yet condemned. But he also had the power of pardon for anyone that was already condemned. He had ultimate power and authority within um, the scope of of Rome as well as within Judaism because they were under his rule and reign. And it appears that, um, that, 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 that the Jews want to utilize this tradition to free Barabbas a man by the name of Barabbas but to condemn Jesus to death and Pilate sees this his as his opportunity to get himself out of a sticky situation and release Jesus whom he doesn't find any charge in and allow him to go so both are trying to utilize it for their advantage verse 15 verse number seven we read a we, we we meet a man by the name of Barabbas um, the, the name literally means son of a father, which is interesting, right? <laughs> you don't really need to say that. All sons are sons of a father, unless there's a uniqueness about it, right? And, the, and there was. The idea was is that, 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 that the term Abba, you see, Barabba, Abba Father, the idea is, is of a son, and, and, and rabbis often had the name Abba or father. They were referred to as that. that. That it's very likely that this man by the name of Barabbas was the son of a nobleman, the son of a rabbi, and the son of nobility, um, that he was someone of notable, I think Matthew says, of a, a notorious or a notable uh, prisoner in Matthew's Gospel chapter number 27. Mark describes him though as a fellow rebel or an insurrectionist. This is more than just a simple rebellious spirit but but, but probably a part of the Jewish party known as the Zealots that set themselves against the authority of Rome which is why they will be crucified. Chances are that they've rebelled in a nationalist effort to to take over Rome or to um, release authority or the tyranny of Rome And, and you and we talked about this months ago when we talked about Mark chapter 13 and, um, and the rebellion that eventually happens in 66 AD led by a group known as the Zealots as they seek to remove the tyranny of Rome um, and many are murdered for it um, but for a period of time they actually come out from under Rome's authority. And that's the idea. Um, that, 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 that Barabbas and probably the two that are on the crosses beside Jesus are men who were caught in an insurrection or a rebellion trying to usurp authority over Rome and to release the tyranny such that uh, that, that Barabbas um, is called a murderer? Um, he's a bloodthirsty nationalist who probably killed a Roman soldier, and now under the authority of Rome, he has been sentenced to death. Um, that's the idea here. He was chained with his fellow rebels. And they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him who Pilate to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered and saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And verses 9 and 10 tell us that Pilate knows that this is just a sham. Um, verse 10 says, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He knew that they had no true allegiance to Rome. You know, mean, it's somewhat hypocritical, isn't it? I mean, uh, their, whole, their whole goal in Judaism at this point is to release themselves from Roman tyranny. That's why they want a Messiah. They want a Messiah that will come and just, just, just erase Rome, take Pilate out so that they can live according to God's law and their tradition, and they want the Messiah to come do that. That's why they're upset with Jesus. And, that's, and it's ironic that that's the exact same charge that they, they, they plant upon Jesus that he is the king of the Jews leading an insurrection, that he's a rebel. You have to put him to death. Otherwise, you're going to be accountable to Caesar. Um, Luke 23, 13 says, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You've brought to me this man as one who misleads the people, and indeed having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. Over and over again, Um, he can find no fault in this man. It ends that passage with, I will therefore chastise and release him. Pilate found no fault in Christ, but to appease them, he affords them a punishment. He says, I'll punish him lightly and I'll send him on his way. And he thought that that could satisfy the Jewish elite, that by affording them a milder punishment and teaching Jesus a lesson that maybe they would be satisfied, but they were not. Um, Matthew 27 and 20 says, now they go to the crowd um, and they sought to persuade the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy or put Jesus literally to death. And that's also in Mark fifteen eleven. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate won't listen. So what we're going to do is we're going to stir the crowd. And this is the idea. And it very well may be that the crowd was already there because they were seeking to release Barabbas. And Barabbas possibly would have been like a hero. You know, I used to wonder as a young man, and even as a, later as a Christian, how in the world they could release a murderer and take Jesus. But the reality is, is that he, wasn't a, he probably wasn't a murderer to them. That he was a hero. That he was a man that was paving the way of uh, of Judaistic nationalism, which they were seeking to uh, free the nation of Israel from Rome. That he would have been considered to be a hero by many. And that what you would find is you would find that that as they come before Rome and he sits before the, they sit before the procurator, they would have cried out to release this man whom they did not necessarily see as guilty like Rome would have convicted them of guilt. They're, they're operating off of a different law and they're operating off of different principles that, that, that this man is going to be unjustly crucified according to much of the nation of Israel and the crowd. And that's why they say, give us this man, free this man. And it may have even seemed virtuous um, because he would have been considered by many a hero. Matthew 27, 19 gives us another clue into what Pilate was thinking whenever he init- when he finishes the job um, it says that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife came to him. So, so now he's got, uh, he's got the, the, the Jewish crowd, the Sanhedrin. Um, he doesn't understand. He's got this silent man who won't defend himself. He, he can't find any fault in him, and it makes it even more frustrating um, because he's like a, 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 an innocent man would defend himself. So why don't you speak up? And at the same time, coming from, um, from another direction is his wife who sends to him a note while he's sitting in the judgment seat, and he says it says this, have nothing to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Um, Sometime during the proceedings, his wife gets a message to him that literally reads like this, nothing to you and to that righteous man. I've suffered much in a dream because of him. And and the phrase is an idiom in in, um, in, in Hebrew as well as in Greek. And the idea is, is that don't meddle in the affairs of this righteous man. He's righteous. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? She knows it. She knows he's a righteous man. He knows he's a righteous man. She's troubled. And her conclusion is not, Pilate, stand for this righteous man. But get out of there. Wash your hands. Be free. Uh, this is more troubling than you could imagine. It's kept me up all night, and, um, and I won't have it. Mark 15, 12, Pilate answered and said to them again, What do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? And what you'll find here is three times he comes back and says, I find no fault in this man. I think it's John's gospel that says a third time he comes back. Um, And you almost see this this waltz of threes, right? Um, Peter denies him three times. Peter's restored three times. Jesus goes and prays three times. Pilate finds him at fault three times and they rebuke uh, and they call for his death three times. There's just this continual repetition of um, resolve in their in their mouths as well as in their hearts. And Pilate says to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out, all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Again, John 9, 19, verses 5 through 15 give us a good portion of why he did that. You don't necessarily need to turn there. I read it earlier. But it was because they manipulated him. And um, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 4, you read these words. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. Remember, the contention continues to rise. There's about to be a revolt There's about to be a chaotic outbreak if he doesn't give give them Barabbas and crucify Jesus. So it says in chapter 27 and 24, because of the tumult, or in Mark chapter 15, to satisfy them so that they wouldn't um, rather cause a tumult, um, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Finally, after three times, the contentions arising so great to satisfy, literally the term says, to satisfy the people, to prevent an uprise and a tumult and the death of many people, um, he gives them Barabbas and takes Jesus and begins to scourge him. And he takes him with the full intent, it says, for him to be crucified. And you can read in John's Gospel that they've already started that. They've put a crown of thorns upon him. They've beaten him as well. Um, Pilate is not a neutral man inherently. Um, He's doing what's best from a political position um, to keep things at peace and to keep um, the Jewish people uh, subdued. So what does he do? Um, He he makes one of the, the foulest decisions Um, and lacks the the, (laughs) lacking integrity um, and one of the the men who lacks the most integrity all throughout scripture has an opportunity here to stand for this righteous man but yields to the pressure of politics and yields to the pressure of people um, seeking to satisfy instead of doing that which he knows is the right thing to do. And that's the story. Now that's the account up to this point. Um, we see this as an integral part of our Lord finishing his, his work. And take a very simple approach and have been for the last few weeks. Simply try to paint a picture for you, and then we'll make some application. So you've seen the accusations. You've seen the possibility, opportunity of amnesty. Um, how can we apply this in our lives? What does this mean? You know, I think it's R.C. Sproul that would often sit in the back of a class as he's teaching and he would hold up a sign and say to the people teaching, so what? You know, Who cares? What does this mean? Our scripture doesn't mean something to you. If it doesn't teach you, and maybe that's part of the issue as we go through this portion of Scripture, isn't it? You know, at the end of it, you wonder, so what? Why does it matter? You know, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a child, I'm a worker. I just need to know how to be more faithful. What does this have to do with much of, um, much of anything? I hope to help you with that. I'm here in just a few moments. But first of all, I would like to um, ask the question, what can we learn? Maybe take some of the people. So what can we learn from them? Uh, And I struggled with who to begin with. We should probably always begin with our Lord, but maybe an introduction to our Lord would be this man by the name of Barabbas. And more so, not even Barabbas, but the crowd. You know, Barabbas is is somewhat of a, a passive player in the entirety of the scene, isn't he? It doesn't seem that he's—he doesn't seem to be one that's actively engaged. It doesn't seem to be one that is putting himself forward. It doesn't seem to be one that is really trying to promote himself for freedom. Although you could speculate that, it's not clearly in the text that he's a, a passive player in the scene. That really, um, the, the issue with Barabbas doesn't come inherently from Barabbas, but from um, the crowd. And you'll remember that I said that that Barabbas' name, his name literally means the son of a father, that he was most likely the son of a rabbi, a notable man, a man of nobility with respect and rank among the Jewish people. Interestingly enough, there are some ancient manuscripts that also have this man's name as not only as Barabbas, but as Jesus Barabbas. Jesus would have been like Joshua, which would have been a common name, hundreds if not thousands of Jewish people there in Judea, Jerusalem, and spread all throughout the world would have had that name. It was somewhat of a, a unique name in that it meant Jehovah saved, and there was some, some prophetic um, imagery that is attached to our Lord, but but also it was simply a common name, such that, that many people would have that name as well, the son of the a, of a father. Jesus Barabbas is very well, um, could have been, and there could have been some confusion in there. Many... Christians actually speculate that whenever they're crying out for Barabbas that they could have very easily have been saying Jesus and that's why Pilate keeps coming back and saying in some sense what man and do you want me to release you the king of the Jews more specifically because that's the man that you have have, have, um, branded. Either way, um, you see somewhat of a contrast here between Barabbas and Christ and it may very well be Uh, The intention of of the providential and supernatural hand of God that He wanted to bring before our eyes. A contrast between two Joshua's, between Barabbas and between Christ. And in some sense, put ourselves even there. In the vote. Who would you choose? Barabbas or Christ? When... One Christian writes these words, he says, Barabbas fights for a freedom which is immediate. Jesus of Nazareth, he's a pioneer of freedom which is ever looking to the future, to the morrow. As for the morrow, well, it never comes. Barabbas represents the emancipation of Israel from the bonds of Rome and and that is a far more practical thing than the work of Jesus who's always talking about emancipation from the slavery of sin. Barabbas, even though he is himself maybe unaware of it, is being appropriated by the Jews' illusion of freedom. And he allows himself to be appropriated in this fashion, especially perhaps because he's still safely seated behind the gate of the prison. There, Barabbas is pliable, as is every bearer of an ideal, every bearer that is, who has no mouth with which to affirm or to protest. But Jesus was ever antagonizing people, nothing pleased him. At one time, he's deliberately refused to accept the king's crown. Barabbas represents revolution, Jesus, the gospel. Barabbas is carnal; Jesus spiritual. Barabbas belongs to the line of Lamech Cain, but Jesus to the line of Seth and Abel. Barabbas wants to subjugate; Jesus to deserve. Uh, Barabbas will not let his sword rest unburnished, but Jesus has no work for a sword to do here. Barabbas is a hero; Jesus is a worm, on which we must necessarily walk. Though we tread ever so lightly of Jesus, we feel like saying, "Not so of Barabbas." It goes on to say that the one name of Joshua is now developed into two different directions, though these two candidates. Jesus of Nazareth redeems us from sin. There's the redeeming of by means of justice. And by earning that justice is a strenuous struggle with God. And Jesus Barabbas redeems from worldly tyranny. There's the redeeming by means of imposed force or rebellion. And without once thinking about earning redemption in a struggle with God or a requisite of satisfying God. Um, Jesus of Nazareth first affects a spiritual redemption. And only after that has taken place does the renewing power realize itself in a visible world. But the redemption of Barabbas is a purely pragmatic incident which takes place according to the law of the flesh. He goes on to say, the pairing of the two names represents the great concealment of the word of God. One can distinguish the true from the false Jesus only by faith and according to the word. Joshua Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth are listed together. These names constitute a ballad in which self-redemption by means of one's own power and redemption through grace are placed next to each other. Salvation without humiliation and salvation by way of humiliation are placed in juxtaposition. Barabbas sacrifices others. The Nazarene sacrifices himself. The one acts in the visible world, the other in the invisible. The first stands for revolution, the second for satisfaction. The former pleases the heart and the latter offends it. All this the heart of Pilate and of whatever is human puts together upon a single ballot. And who do the people choose? Salvation by force or salvation by humiliation? by revolution and revolt um, and the heroes of this world more by sacrifice and service. Um, Here we have two men brought before the people and the people must choose. And this choice did not last a mere few minutes, but the question of the ages is embodied in these men. We know which the world receives. Barabbas. Why? Because the world values immediate reward. A kingdom of this world, a kingdom now. Emancipation from the tyranny of this world a tyranny of authority that is over us. The world hates Jesus of Nazareth consequently. He's worthless. He's a nobody. If they respect Him at all, He's relegated to nothing more than a a position of a simple preacher of love and a good teacher, a rabbi. But when the world begins to see what the choices are and measures Jesus of Nazareth, they say, we will not have this man rule over us. They don't want emancipation from the slavery of sin and liberty to serve God. They want emancipation from any authority from the slavery of sin, uh, for any authority to have the liberty to sin in whatever capacity that they desire, even in a religious capacity. You see, that's what they wanted. This is more than just crucifying Jesus. This is give us a man who will rule over us. Give us a man that will lead the insurrection. Give us a man that will lead the rebellion. Give us a man that will release us from tyranny. Because clearly this man won't. This man offers something different. This man um, gives all the evidence of Messiah, gives all the, I mean, all that he'd ever done for Israel was grace. I mean, it was mercy. Untold. I mean, he lives three and a half years. Of just healing the sick and preaching the gospel and going to 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 the places of poverty and reaching down and, and 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 healing and 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 soothing and extending grace and extending mercy and and, and, and it culminates here in just utter hatred of him. You know. And they're willing to crucify Him and they're willing to, to, to cast Him under the bus of Roman tyranny and, 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 the greatest of, and, and, and seemingly the greatest of deaths. And the greatest, led by, the greatest of death preceded by the greatest of torture for the greatest of criminals. Um, why? I find no fault in this man. What has he done? Even a pagan idolater has enough eyes to see this is unjust and it's not right. And this man needs to go free. But they would not have it. They would not do it. Their eyes were so blinded and hatred so filled their heart and their desire for a kingdom according to their own, their own, their own effect and their own resolve and their own resolution was so much so that they murdered the Christ. And listen to me, the, the, the question today um, is not so much who do you choose, Jesus or Barabbas? Because the reality of this text is that you would always choose Barabbas. That's the point. Jesus stands there alone. Even the greatest of men, according to, uh, according to those days and according to our, um, our um, comprehension, men like uh, Matthew, men like John, men like James, men like Peter, have all abandoned him. And I know that we like to think that if we had been there in the crowd, you know, it's like Nazi Germany. We love to think that, that we look back with such disdain for those people and what happened in Nazi Germany, and we like to cast them somewhat under the bus, and, and, and in some sense morally, rightfully so, but we do it with somewhat of an arrogance and a pride, thinking that had we been there in the crowd, we would have been one of those, those, those few brave, courageous men who would have stood against um, Hitler, who would have stood against Nazi Germany, not realizing that had we been in the crowd, we too would have probably cried out, crucify Him. That that's the point. Jesus stands as Savior alone. And that all of mankind cries out in His heart and with His mouth, crucify Him, kill Him. Why? Because we will not have this man rule over us. Give us Barabbas. Give us a man who will lead our way. Give us a man who will be a hero. Give us a man that will release us from any authority so that we can live our lives according to our desires and according to our nature. They didn't really want Barabbas. They wanted no man to rule over them. They wanted to serve their pagan um, form of Judaism. They wanted to serve their idolatrous nature. And they wanted to serve their God in any way. And they wrapped it up in a spiritual present in such a way that that, that it made it sound even somewhat righteous. That that's the point. You know? That all of mankind stands condemned because all of mankind condemns the Christ. And had we been there, we too would have denied Jesus. We too would have, apart from the grace of God and the spiritual working of the Word of God. that, that That's the point. You know, not that there's some virtuous here today that would have stood for Jesus and cried out and even went to the death and hung there on this cross with him. That the only people that are there beside him, too, are murderers and rebels in need of salvation. And it won't be 40 to 50 days in which that's, that very um, thought is or that very principle is brought to light. Acts chapter 2, when Jesus dies, He's resurrected. man, And just a work of God is done in the, in the, in the lives of, of men like Peter. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he says these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through Him in, in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. And he points them right in the eye. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put Him to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that He should be held by it. That's why David goes on to say concerning Him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. And he quotes there that He would not leave His soul in Hades. And then in verse number all right, he goes on to preach the gospel, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freak, speak freely to you concerning the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with you to this day, therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him um, that, that of the fruit of the body, according to the flesh, he would raise him up to uh, raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his uh, did his uh, flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand, highly exalted to the, the hand of God, and, received, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out what we now see and hear. And then in verse 38, Peter said to them, let's see verse 37. Now when they heard this, this is the, the, the same people that were in the crowd. His mothers, his is fathers, this is those that had gathered together, and said, "Give us Barabbas." When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, "Repent." And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children. Remember, He washed His hands, and what did they say? He said, "He said His blood's not on my hands." What did they say? "His blood be upon us and our children." You know, it's the lot of you. It's all of you. Um, it's every one of you, and not only you, it's your children. Um, but Jesus dies for that very sin. Peter stands up and he preaches that, 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 that you were lawless and you murdered the Christ, but know this that if you'll repent today, that, 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 that if you'll trust in Christ, that if you'll believe in the death, the burial, the resurrection, that if you will you'll bind yourself to him and you'll be in Christ and He in you, that if you'll repent of your sins, that the gift of God and the Holy Spirit will be given to you, and not only to you, but 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 this promise is to you and to your children. That the condemnation that rests upon you I mean, is 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 is. Is, is a portion of what uh, the purpose of Jesus Christ. That's the point. The point is not today, you know, uh, who, would you, who would you cry out for in the crowd? The, 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 the reality is, is that you would have cried out for Barabbas, and that that's exactly why Jesus needed to die. And that you and your children, and that this nation and every nation throughout every generation up until the return of Christ needs him that we're all murderers by nature, that we're all sinful at our core, that we're all corrupt, and that we all desire not for Him to rule over us, but that through His death, through His burial, and through His resurrection, um, even the most heinous of sins can be forgiven. You know, like what is the worst sin that you could ever think of? I mean, some of you, it's abortion. You know, it is, man, it is. God, it breaks my heart every day to drive past that place. Sometimes I avoid it because of that. It's hard to go out there. Homosexuality. It's an abomination of the Lord, I know. We love to harp on that. But what about murdering the Christ? What about crying out Barabbas? Release us from the tyranny of this world. What about Barabbas? When in all reality, most of us do that every single day. Seek to come out under the authority of God himself. Give us a man who will rule over us, who really won't rule over us, but will allow us to rule ourselves. When in all reality, the only way you'll ever govern yourself and in a way that ever pleases God is to be free from the liberty of sin and the captivity of sin and unto Christ. They're the greatest of sins. That's the point. That you're the greatest of sinners and so am I. But there is forgiveness that's offered in Christ even though we've crucified the Christ. But that's what we learn, I believe, from Barabbas. What do we learn from our Lord? As we think of our Lord's sovereign submission, I want to leave you with a couple of scriptures that I think could help you. Hebrews chapter 12, you'll remember that great verse. Therefore we also, since we've been surrounded by a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight. You remember that. Well, maybe you don't remember verse three, which has been just such an encouragement to my heart this this week. For consider Him, who? That one, the Christ, the finisher of our faith, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. For consider Him, As you read this passage of Scripture, I'm begging you to consider Him. The text goes on to say, Who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Why in the world do we spend so much time in the book of Mark? You think about that? I'm just a guy wanting to serve my family. And like raise my children and just know what to, how to be a faithful. Like why am I spending so much time in the details? We need to get to something practical. Listen, there's nothing ever more practical than the gospel. That you need the details. You need to know what your Lord and Savior went through. You need to know um, what He endured. You need to consider Him. The author and the finisher of your faith. The one who is the creator of heavens and and the earth. The one who is the the sovereign power over all the universe. The one who knit you in your mother's womb. The one who displayed His glory to you. The one who sent His only Son into the world to die a sinner's death on your behalf. And not not just Judas's behalf or his sin but your sin as a real culpable responsible accountable sinner. Jesus Christ enters in and he takes the death that you and I deserve why so that we might have the life and the righteousness that he has had for all the ages that we might be with him and be present among him and that we might fellowship with him and build kingdom here for him and be a blessing to others and to be a blessing even to him you need to know what he endured you need to consider Him. Why? Because uh, who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself. Why? Lest that you do not become weary and that you do not become discouraged in your souls. Like we study and I spent you know, that, that amount of time and we went a year and a half through the book of Mark because I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to be weary. It's, it's, it's a hard work. You, know, you think about the Lord. You think about the Sanhedrin before the crowds, before Pilate, before Rome. Consider all the wretched things that they said and all the horrific things they did and all the lies that they told and all the mistreatment of our Lord. You think about all of them and you think about them so you won't grow weary and lose heart when that happens to you. And He said that if they hated Me, they'll hate you. If there's opposition to Me, there'll be opposition to you. That this life and this world is is a life of of opposition and contrast and, and, and hostility. And that we draw strength, brethren, from looking to Christ, not only in His resurrection, but also in His death and in His dying up to that death, in the torture and the hostility and the lies and the mistreatment. We look at that and we and it encourages our souls if we look at it right. That this is the God sovereign of all the world who entered in and submitted Himself to the authorities and the realms of this world and that He was exalted in due time and that that promise is also for you. There's a, a tendency and a natural progression for us as we endure difficulties to, to this life to grow weary and to wonder why and to, and to weigh out in the balance and just want to, to quit it all. And I can tell you, like, I'm the perfect candidate for that. Like, it just depends on the day of the week that you ask me how I'm doing. You know, that, that one day it may be I'm ready to quit it all, and another day I'm, I'm willing to, to, to just, just charge the world, you know, for Christ taking the sword of the Spirit. And the thing that often hinges, the, 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 and, the, and the thing that, that my faithfulness often hinges upon is, 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 is whether or not I'm, I'm looking at Him. And I'm seeing Him. And I'm seeing the, 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 the tumult, and I'm seeing the, the degradation, and I'm seeing the dissension into, into the world, and the darkness, and the evil. But then I see Him rise up. I see Him go. I see Him with resolve. I see Him in the midst of the chaos with total, um, with total uh, composition, to- entirely composed. And the rest of the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and, and Pilate's losing it, and, and the crowd's coming up, and Jesus is there, and He's silent. So it's kind of like He knew what was happening and what was going on, and almost as if He knew that this was His work to do, and thus He had a resolve. First Peter chapter 2, and verse number 20, you read these words. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults you take it patiently. When you do but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who was when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Could it be that Peter is telling us that we were called for patient endurance? Peter tells us that the Lord himself left us a pattern. Lord, how did you do it? How did you get the result? How did he endure it? How did he go? How did he maintain composure? How did you say he's God? That's true, but he's also man. That's why he agonizes in in the garden. That's why he sweats drops of blood. That's why he comes to the end of himself. How did you do it, Lord, in your humanity? What, What gave you the resolve? It may have been what Peter tells us here, that he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. One of the things that should compel us to endure the wrongdoing that is done to us on, on many days and if not some, some weeks every day, to compel us to endure with patience and persevere under hostility and antagonism by our family, by our coworkers, by the world around us, by the tyranny um, of, a, of a governing system, by, 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 by you name it. That the way that we will endure is the way that Christ endured and that He entrusted Himself to the one who judges righteously that one day all the books will be opened and every account will be balanced. Peter says, just as Jesus, how do you stand before Pilate and not say anything? I mean, especially as a righteous man. He had the right to stand up and to make a, a case for himself, but he doesn't. How in the world do you do that? Because I entrust myself to the one who judges righteously. Pilate, as much of a king as he thinks he is, he's a peasant and a pauper. He's, he's the dust of the earth. He entrusted himself to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He entrusted himself to the Father. He entrusted himself that he would be judged righteously and that when he stood before the Father on that day, he would give himself um, a, a, faithful, um, a faithful life. And thus he would be exalted in due time and given a name which is above every name and exalted to the very right hand of God the Father. How do you do it when the Jews are there and they're just lying about you? You know, I mean, just time and time again, accusation after accusation. And whenever, they, whenever one falls, they just come out with another lie. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that at work? How do you deal with that in the home? How do you do it and not lose it? How do you maintain composure? You trust that there's a God in heaven who will one day balance all the books and that every man will be accountable. Thus, you don't take vengeance for yourself because God Himself will repay. You know, like you just submit yourself to Him. You know, you, you don't worry about everything that's going on. Well, what if this thing happens, or what if it goes down that route? You ask the question, like, what is what is required of me? You know, that's something that I've had to ask myself, and in every realm of life over the last few years, it's been the most important question in my life. What does God require of me? Not do, you, not son. What do you want to do with your life? You know. What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what do you what, what do you hope is out in the front? No, 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 what what is required of you to be found faithful? You know, because you can do a lot of great things, and you can spearhead a lot of great, um, uh, you know, um, establishments and 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 pursuits, and you can be a great pioneer. But what if you're pioneering the wrong thing? You know. At the end of the day, like how can I, as a father, think that you know, actually know that what I'm doing is what is is, is something that that that, that could, should encourage my soul, you know? Like as a father, how can I look at my my life and and and, and seem, seemingly look, be somewhat obscure and according to the rest of the world a waste? How can I look at that and just and just 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 take it by faith, you know, and just and just know that, that when I stand before God, that, that 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 He's going to give an account. That's how you stay faithful. You look at your, your 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 wife, and you look at your children, and you look at your career, and you look at your church, and you say, "And these are things God gave me." You know, like I don't care what the world says. I don't, I'm not feeding off of their lives. I don't, I don't care what they say about the family. I don't care what they say about my children. I don't care what they say about the church. I don't care what they say about my doctrine. I'm 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 I'm, I'm holding myself accountable to the one who judges righteously. Thus I can walk around with a smile on my face and joy in my heart you know, and give uh, fist bumps and high fives all day long when the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Chaos is all around me. The lies are coming in um, uh, in in, in just multitudes and in greater volumes than I could ever calculate. And there's so much mistruth going on. I can know that what is before me honors and pleases God. And thus I, I don't get weary. You know, Jesus, how did you do it? I didn't trust the world. I didn't trust the devil. I didn't trust the flesh. At the end of the day, I just grounded myself in the word of God. I leaned a lot on the spirit of God. I spent a lot of time in prayer and I just cast myself upon him. That's what we learn from Jesus. That's what we learn from this. You say, but you don't know what they said about me. You don't know what they've done. I don't, it doesn't matter. Son, it doesn't matter. What does God require of you? And will you be found faithful? Because I'm afraid that some of our pursuits are just our pursuits. And on that great day, they'll be burned up with wood, hay, and stubble. And they'll be very little gold and silver and precious stone. Those things that are most precious to us are those things which God gives us and those things which we guard, those talents that we invest and just don't bury in the ground. Like what has God given you? If he's given it to you, don't don't think little of it and run after it regardless of of who or what or anything else that says, believe God. How did you stay faithful Christ in your humanity? How did you hold resolve and they're lying about you. How did you? How did you go like a like a like a lamb to the the slaughter without saying a word? Like you're the righteous, holy one of Israel. I trusted the plan of God, and I trusted my soul to the Father. I think that part of the problem with us on many days is we don't know what God requires. And if we do, we still give way too much voice or much of our ears to the world. We believe the world more than we believe God, you know? Um, when in all reality, you know, I look at my life and many days I am have a melancholy spirit and, and I look in the mirror and I say, son, you're stupid. You are a blessed man. God has just overwhelmingly loved you, not only in Christ, but he's given you a wife, he's given you a family, he's given you a church. Stop wishing your life was better or greater. How much more greater could it be than this? You know? Can like, you just open your eyes up to that every day? And and and, and the, those eyes open and your heart opens as you look into the gospel, and you see Christ. When you're when, when you're pro, pro, when you're prone to to wonder, Lord, I feel it. When you're prone to to leave the God I love. When you're prone to question the grace of God, you just keep coming back to the gospel. What does this have to do with me? I'm just trying to raise a family. It has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with you, you know, because the how-to's will be undergirded and promoted by the why's, you know. I say, in some sense, it's it's even more important of why you do the things than you do than, than how, um, because you can do the how right, and get the why wrong. Stand before God one day and say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in Your name, and He's going to say, Depart from me, a uh, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Because why? Why are you a father? Why are you a mother? Why do you have your children? Why should you raise them up in the nurturing and that mission? Why are you working? Why are you laboring? Why are you fellowshipping? Why are you here this morning? You know, why? Because you have a risen Savior who gave his life on Calvary on your behalf so that you'd live the rest of your days living and honoring and offering glory to him one day to die and quickly be forgotten that you may leave a heritage that will be remembered forever in your children and in your church. Let us do that. Let us be that. This is in part, this isn't all, but this is in part what the gospel teaches us in Christ as he endured the lies and the sinfulness of the most wicked of all mankind. But let us not forget that had we been there, we too, such the grace of God that he would save anyone like us. So let us serve him with the utmost heart and gratitude and joy in our souls. And when we're quick to grow weary, let us rush back to the cross and even prior and let us look to the right hand of God even now. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege serving and honoring you. God, what a passage. What a glory. In all of the depravity that we saw there, we saw a lamb totally composed. Uh, We saw a son the very son of God with resolve who trusted himself to you. He was not sitting before Pilate. He was not even there because he was accused. He was there because he had determined before the ages began to love a host of sinners that didn't deserve the grace of God. That he stood there as the very servant of Jehovah, the one whom Isaiah sings about, the one whom the Psalms recount, That he doesn't stand as a prisoner and he doesn't stand as a slave and he doesn't stand as a criminal. There before Pilate, he stands as the servant of God with a resolve to take it and to finish the work. And we glory in that this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege it is to know the King of kings and Lord of lords and Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, may you ever remind us of the gospel. May you ever remind us of Barabbas. May you ever remind us of us. Um, May you ever remind us, Father, um, of who you are and what you came to accomplish on our behalf. May it strengthen us as fathers. May it give us resolve as mothers. May it help us to raise our children. May it give us a sense of value and worth and dignity as we find our identity utmost in Christ. Father, may we love it every single day. May we not believe the lies of the world, Father, but may we have some resolve to believe you. God, may we, as we are prone to get weary and discouraged, may you just continually bring to the forefront of our mind and the depths of our heart the great love wherewith you loved us in Christ. And may even the hostility of the world and the lies of of the world and the deception of Satan even remind us as we look in the cross, And we see that all of that happened according to your plan and according to your purposes to secure the greatest miracle of all mankind, the salvation of sinners, of whom we are chief and of whom we are gracious. Father, we glory in you this morning. And I just pray that each family that's here, each soul that's here, each child that's here, Father, that you would remind them of that. That you would show them the, the glory of the cross and that you would remind them often of your holiness, but also, Father, of your love, that if they are in Christ, they will never be outside of that. And may they cast their cares upon you, um, the one who cares for us. Father, um, we leave this time to you now. And as we move forward with our communion and fellowship in the Lord, may you bless it as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.